Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. The theology of suffering. So who's excited they came tonight? <laughs> so we want to go deep in this topic. We don't just want to be light or just give platitudes. We, we really recognize that there is very real suffering in the world. And uh, we're going to talk about where, why that is and where it came from. And it's a five-week series. And tonight we're actually going to just start talking about endurance. And you're going to see why we're starting there. Next week, Pastor Simon is going to really frame suffering and carrying it, carry it on from there. But tonight we're going to start with talking about suffering. And I've entitled the sermon tonight, Bambalela, Hold On. Um, And uh, we're going to start reading from John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus says this on the night before his crucifixion. You know, there's only one person on this planet who, ever, who never, ever deserved pain and suffering. Who never, ever did anything to cause pain and suffering. Who only came to love and to bless and to show the glory and grace of God. And he is the one who is saying these words. The night before, he's about to experience the worst suffering ever imaginable. And you know, that suffering isn't the death on the cross. That's awful. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you know, we've just celebrated Easter recently. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, specialists and, and Bible scholars tell us that that is just a fraction of what it looked like for Jesus to die on a cross. But you know what the real suffering for Jesus was? The Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember how he sweated blood? Why did, he, why did he do that? It wasn't the fear of death. Jesus had never, ever been separated from his Father. Never, ever. See, we know the pain of being separated from God because we make choices and we keep ourselves from him. And we think that's just how life is. So we just make do, right? But Jesus had never, ever been separated from his Father. And he was separated to the point of going to hell. Do you understand that? Because he had to suffer everything we had to suffer so he could save us and redeem us and deliver us and set us fully and completely free. And Jesus was fully man and fully God. He gave up his Godhead when he came to earth. He functioned, the miracles, the glory we see, that's a human being submitted fully to the Holy Spirit. Because that's for you and I, right? And so he demonstrated what it looks like to be fully submitted to the Holy Spirit. And he, and the Bible says that he suffered unto death. But it went further. He went to hell. Why? So he could put everything that belonged in hell back there. And then he rose from the dead. Why? So that we don't have to die and go to hell ever. So that we can have eternal life. And so this portion of scripture, John 16 verse 33, it's literally the last part 
of Jesus speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper. After this, he prays in John 15 and six, uh, um, no, sorry, in front John 17 and 18, and then he is he is he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he is arrested, and he's put on that cross and he dies. And and he's telling them something. He's telling you and I something on the night before the worst suffering that has ever been experienced will be experienced. And he says, I tell you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is proof that Jesus was a prophet. In this world you will have tribulation. Was he right? Are we in good company tonight? Who has suffered tribulation? Jesus told us it would happen. But what he tells us before the tribulation, <laughs> well, he acknowledges, first of all, that the world is a hard place, right? You see, the, the thing we also forget about suffering in Jesus is that he was born into oppression. Israel was oppressed by Rome, violently and viciously oppressed by Rome. Sons and daughters were sold into slavery. People were killed, and I'm going to use an old English word, willy-nilly, for absolutely no reason <laughs> at the whim of their oppressors. And so Jesus didn't grow up dancing and skipping. I mean, he did dance and skip. I'm sure he did. But he grew up in a world that was very, very used to sudden violence, to sudden trauma, to not being able to do what you want to do, to being forced to do stuff you didn't want to do. We forget this. And so Jesus fully understands when he says, in this world you have tribulation, it's because what he's going to about to do isn't the first tribulation he suffered. It most certainly is not the first tribulation any of those disciples have suffered. And so he acknowledges that the world is a hard place and that it's a place of trouble and hardship. And do you notice that he doesn't come with any promises of perfection? Um, a very old song says, I didn't promise you a rose garden. <laughs> and Jesus most certainly did not promise a rose garden. He faced the fact of what it's like to be human on a fallen planet. But then he says something so interesting. I've said these things to you. Why? The things he said to them is how bad it's going to be. If you go read John 16, you'll see. He says, why did I tell you these things? So that in me you may have peace. And so he's offering his disciples peace. And they don't realize it yet, but by offering them peace, he's offering them hope. You see, true peace can only come from being fully joined with Christ. And the Bible talks about it. We are joined in his resurrection because we are first joined with him in his death and his obedience and his suffering. And then we are joined with him. In his resurrection. But this is what peace is. The word, the word here means to be set at one with again. To be in harmony with. To be in full agreement with. Biblically, the peace Jesus is talking about here is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot content with its earthly lot. John, I haven't been content with my earthly lot for a while. I think ESCOM has a lot to do with it. But I have not, right? And what that tells me is when I realize that I am not content with my earthly lot, 
I don't have peace. I'm no longer joined with Jesus Christ. I'm not in harmony with. You see, I believe that a true definition of suffering is as simple as this. There is something in my life I don't want there, or there is something missing from my life that I really do want. Either of those things feel like suffering. Even if the thing we have is good for us, but we hate it, or the thing we want is actually going to kill us, but we think we really, really need it. Even then, it feels like suffering to us. And the issue there is, the second I want something that isn't in my life, I, I, I blame God because I'm asking Him. And then it doesn't come. What happens? I lose my peace. Why? Because I'm no longer joined with Him. The thing there's something that God's put in my life to discipline me, to guide me, to teach me, to help me, but I don't want it there. I think he's cruel. I think he's unfair. I'm no longer in peace. I'm no longer one with him. You see, Jesus knew that these very men he was talking to, that through their lives, these disciples, these friends, that they would fear for their lives so much that they would abandon him at the cross. There's only one of these men who stands at that cross, John. You'll see another exclusive thing that John has in a moment. <laughs> I don't want to draw too much con uh, comparison with it, but you'll see. John was the only one at the cross. He knew that these people he's talking to about tribulation, who love him with all their hearts, who think he's amazing, are about to abandon him. He knows that through their lives, they would be scattered, arrested, thrown out of synagogues, and eventually every single one of them martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, except for one who... They tried to martyr him. They tried to martyr John. They boiled him in oil. Now, I don't know if I want to survive that, I'm telling you right now. But the grace of God, John lived to be in his early 80s. They couldn't kill him, so they just exiled him to the island of Patmos. And later on, he moved to the city of Ephesus, and he became a massive Christian tourist attraction because he was the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if, if it's a reward <laughs> for him standing at the cross. We're not saying that. But it does seem like John stayed at one with Jesus Christ. He's the apostle of love. If you read the book of 1, 2, and 3 John, it's all about love. He understood something about it. So when Jesus tells his friends there's going to be tribulation, he knows exactly what's going to happen to them and what they're going to suffer but he tells them that by staying connected to him, they can experience a sense of calm and serenity even in the midst of turmoil and distress. And even those martyrdoms prove to us that they stayed at one with him. That after abandoning him at the cross, when they saw his resurrection, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were convinced. And even to death, they were calm and serene and at peace. And finally, Jesus assures his disciples that he has already overcome the world. And overcome, the Greek word literally means to defeat, to win a victory over, as in a contest or military conflict. And what is the world? The world is the created physical realm, the domain of existence here on earth that we are inhabiting and experiencing right now. 
But Jesus, when Jesus said this to his disciples, I have overcome the world. I have defeated, subdued, and won the victory like a military king. That's the word he's using. That's what they think is going to happen. You see, why did they abandon him at the cross? Because they didn't understand he was going to die. They, this man that they loved with all their heart, that they walked with for three years, that they cherished, they didn't quite grasp why he had come. Their hope was that he was going to win a military victory. Like I said, he was going to annihilate those oppressors. He was going to bash them so hard that they were ground to dust like they had ground Israel so that Israel could rule over the earth. They thought that that was the kingship Jesus was talking about. They thought that was the victory Jesus was talking about. And when he died, they had nothing to hold on. It sounds ridiculous, right? But there before the cross... They don't have the understanding we have. After his resurrection, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, suddenly they remember everything he said, and they begin to understand that when he said, I have overcome the world, it was not about military victory. It was not about triumphing and ruling and oppressing others because now you are on top. That's not at all what it was about. And so what was Jesus saying when he said, I have overcome the world? Well, three things that he did for us by overcoming the world is that he overcame sin and temptation. See, before salvation, we are dead in disobedience and sin. We only know how to follow the passions and desires of our sinful nature. That's all we can do before salvation. And whether it's self-righteousness or absolute depravity, there is only one choice we can make, and that is to sin. Even when we're trying to do good, we will just end up sinning, because it will be all about us. But Jesus gave us life when he was raised from the dead, and he has won the victory over sin and death, so we can fully live in the life, that life. We are not bound to sin anymore. This is the simple definition of freedom. You don't have to sin. It's your choice if you want to, but you don't have to. That is what freedom is. That is the power of Jesus Christ. The second you invite Jesus into your heart, your eyes open up. Your heart understands. Suddenly you know what sin is and what righteousness is. But it's your responsibility because you are free. And so temptation is absolutely going to be a part of our lives. I mean, any hands? It, it just, it comes, right? It's there. You think you're doing so well with Jesus. You're going strong. You're singing the songs in your car and then whammo. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> but this is the power of Jesus. This is how he has overcome the world because he gave us the gift of forgiveness. You see, it's not military. It's relationship. No matter how oppressed you are by Rome, when Jesus has forgiven your sins, you are free. He has overcome the world because we no longer live by the world's standard of freedom. And through repentance and confession, we have full access to living shame-free, guilt-free, debt-free, full of the grace and love of Jesus that sounds like overcoming the world. Because the world cannot have a hold on you if that is your attitude and if that is your position before God. Secondly, Jesus overcame spiritual forces. 
Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he also won a pivotal victory over Satan and all the supernatural powers of evil who are aligned with him. The devil is defeated. Power has been ripped from him. Do you know that right now Satan is a prisoner in hell living out his sentence? The only power Satan has is the power we give him in our mind in our thoughts and our feelings and our hearts. That is the only power he has. There are no demons out there waiting to jump on you. When you start agreeing with fear, when you start moving out of the peace of God and aligning with God, you open doors. And that is all the authority they have is what we give them. This is a military victory. <laughs> Satan is done with. So why don't we just leave him alone? Why don't we just agree with him and give him no access? We can do that. We can do that. And then Jesus overcame the world because he overcame death. Death is an inevitable reality for all people. But for believers in Jesus Christ, death means victory over our last enemy. Christ's death grants salvation and eternal life to all who believe in him. At the tomb of Lazarus, his best friend, or a very good friend of his, possibly his best friend, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, he loves them all. Jesus stands there weeping. Why is he weeping? Because he knows what he's about to do. But he weeps because they don't. He weeps for you and I who have to weep when loved ones die. He shows us that it's good to mourn because death is unnatural. Death was never a part of the creation and never a part of God's plan for us. From a fallen world, death came into being. And everybody has to die. And we will all suffer death and we will suffer death of people we love. And people we love will suffer the death of us. And so Jesus weeps because that is what is fitting to do when you love somebody and they die. Your weeping, your mourning proves your love for them. When you grieve somebody, it is nothing but love. It's a good thing. But Jesus weeps so that we will be able to. But he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he brings Lazarus forth. Think about that. And then, of course, he himself dies and resurrects. And so can you see, these are just three examples, but can you see how Jesus has overcome the world? And again, if we stand in an understanding of what he actually has done, then the world cannot have a hold on us. Then it is our choice whether we want the world to have a hold on us or not. But he has overcome the world. And because Jesus has overcome the world, the good news is you and I can endure. We are not fighting a battle. We are not by ourselves skirmishing in some mountain with no water and no food, surrounded by ravenous enemies. Well, we might be surrounded by ravenous enemies, but they have no authority over us. We are a victorious army stepping out. It doesn't mean we're always successful because we feel suffering, right? But we are an army who feels suffering and knows where to go and knows who to go to. We are an army that when the suffering is inexplicable and we don't know why it's there and we cannot make sense of it, that we endure. We bambalela. 
So I, I was looking for some stories of um, endurance, <laughs> and I came across this one, so I'm going to just read it to you quick. Young Kum was born in 1976 to a Jewish family in Kiev, Ukraine, experiencing all the negative effects of growing up in a communist regime. His father worked in construction, while his mother stayed at home with her son. After the collapse of communism, Kum's mother decided it was best if the family moved to America to start a new chapter. But their new life in Mountain View, California, wasn't easy by any means. Although his father planned to join the family, he never did. Making matters worse, Kum's mother received a cancer diagnosis shortly after their arrival in the U.S. To make ends meet, the mother and son received federal assistance, welfare, food stamps, and government housing. Poverty-stricken, the teenagers supplemented their income by working as a janitor at a grocery store. Two years after immigrating to the U.S., Kum taught himself computer program. He also received a hands-on education in cybersecurity by joining the elite hacking group WooWoo, <laughs> which eventually helped him secure a job with Yahoo. Some of you don't even know what we're talking about, but in any case, the precursor to Google, right? Um, uh, even though he never graduated from college. Uh, at Yahoo, he met his future business partner called Brian Acton. In 2007, both of them quit, feeling unfulfilled in their jobs. They both applied for positions with Facebook, but were rejected. Considering their next move, Jan was interested in new technologies such as Skype. Yes, it was new back then, right? And began forming ideas of how to improve user experience in such spaces. Growing up, communication with his family back in the Ukraine was so expensive, which meant it was difficult to stay close to him. And he wanted to provide a solution for those in similar circumstances by creating an easy-to-use cross-platform messaging app that made phone calls and texts more accessible to friends and family. In 2009, he began working on the app, talking to developers and funders. On the 24th of February, Jan's birthday, he and Brian established WhatsApp Inc. <laughs> it launched on May 3, 2009, and was immediately a flop. <laughs> a few months later, Apple updated the software for iPhones to allow push notifications, and this move changed the entire game plan. Kum reworked his strategy to build the app around people's social networks. He and Brian also revamped their investment and business strategy. The new version's release in September of 2009 proved massively successful, and the company experienced rapid growth. Several former colleagues at Yahoo invested $250,000 in the business. Kum kept working on improving the app and making it functional for more users. WhatsApp wasn't cheap to run. Um, just the cost of MS SMS verification texts cost the business thousands of dollars per month in 2010. Nevertheless, the founders agreed to not take a salary for those first few years. Their persistent endurance, dedication, and hard work paid off in 2011. They received $8 million from Sequoia Capital, which was followed by $50 million in 2013. And this is the part I absolutely love. In 2014, Facebook, the company who didn't think they would make good employees, made the WhatsApp co-founders an offer they could not refuse. $19 billion. <laughs> and both Jan and Brian have started charities, philanthropic and non-profit organizations in all kinds of fields and various things to continually make the world a better place. Aren't you glad that Jan Kum 
persevered and endured. I don't know what life would be like without WhatsApp. Because when you don't have minutes, you just find some free Wi-Fi, you jump on WhatsApp. It, it literally revolutionized our lives, right? Most of us don't have telecom phones in our house anymore because of WhatsApp. But it, can you see how much endurance it took? It, it feels like everything in Jan's story should have meant he never, we'd never heard of him. But he endured. He persevered. And this is the fruit of endurance. We do something significant. We do something meaningful. And so endurance means to hold out against, to sustain without impairment or yielding, to undergo. To sustain without impairment or yielding. Remember that. It, it means to continue to exist, to last. We last forever. Let's exist forever with Jesus. It means to bambalela, to hold on without letting go. It is the continuing Christian commitment in the face of difficulty. Who's suffering difficulty today? You are set up for endurance. God has given you an opportunity to endure. Yes, I agree with you. Sometimes we wish he wouldn't. But it's not him. <laughs> Lots of agreement. <laughs> but it's not him, right? It's this world we live in that is fallen and broken and won't go back to him. And so I want to talk about three things from this point. I want to talk about when do we endure. I want to talk about when do we not endure. And I want to talk about how do we motivate ourselves to endure. And so when do we endure? Well, we endure as we conform to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. To be conformed to the image of Christ causes suffering to our flesh. Has anybody experienced that? All you want is Jesus. Jesse was, yes, Lord, more of you, Jesus. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> Do not be sorry. It's good. Why? is conforming to the image of Christ, so suffering to our flesh. Simply this fact, I am no longer Lord of my life. He is. Suddenly, there's a whole thing, a bunch of things that want to come into my life that I don't want. Suddenly, there's a whole lot of things that are in my life that are taken away from me. It feels like suffering because it is. Why? Because two, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We have to die to sin and we have to live to righteousness. And that requires endurance. Dying is not a pleasant experience. I realized many years ago that dying is a physical thing you will experience. There is a moment where you know you're dying. The movies can sometimes make it look very peaceful and quick or whatever, but it's a real physical experience. I'm sorry to shock you. Don't think about it too much. But it is. That's why we fight it. Our natural body, our mind, everything fights it. It is suffering. And so we have to die to our flesh to rise to the spirit. 
If you want to conform to Jesus, if you are serious about your relationship with Jesus, you have to die to yourself. And it will feel awful. And it's continual. I've been a Christian for 35 years. And every year I think, this is the year. And then the Lord shows me something I didn't see before. And we keep conforming to the image of Jesus. <laughs> it just is what it is. But what is the reward of conforming to, to the image of Jesus? That we become like him. That we know him. That we have intimacy with the Father. That we have full access to all the resource of heaven. And the point of conforming to the image of Christ isn't that Jesse and I look exactly the same or Loreco and I look exactly the same. It's that as Jesse conforms to the image of Jesus, she looks more like herself. As Loreco conforms more to the image of Jesus, he looks more like himself. So that we can stand before our Lord and Savior. We endure as we are being saved. Matthew 10, verse 21 to 22. Jesus is once again, I think this is Matthew's version of, of the John passage. He's telling them everything that's going to be awful and horrible and a nightmare. And he says this in, chapter, in, in verses 21 to 22. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we must endure for the sake of our salvation. You see, what Jesus is saying is there is so much that comes against us. The second we put up our hand and say, be my Lord and Savior, the second we are saved, while we are still in the joy and celebration of that moment, there is this onslaught that comes against us to rob it from us. And true salvation is eternal life, right? That is the promise of salvation. But there is a very real sense that we are being saved in this world. It's not just about eternal life. It's about how we live here. That God wants us to prosper. That God wants us to be in peace. That God wants us to experience the fullness of Him. His prayer teaches us that. Let it be here like it is in heaven. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. That is why we have to endure. That's the salvation He wants us to experience right here on this earth. And we have to endure. You know that. Because sometimes you sin and you feel so bad and then you don't come to church for three weeks. And then eventually you drag up the courage to come and you feel awful and you're in worship and you feel disconnected and you think God's judging you. All that's happened is you didn't endure. It's very human. Every one of us have stories of that. Lareko and I have stories of that more recently than we care to share. <laughs> Lareko saying he never, never has a problem. <laughs> because it's hard to endure. And, and like I keep telling you, relationship costs. And you are in relationship with Jesus. He's not interested in just you towing the line and ticking boxes. Obedience is valuable, but he wants you to love him. He wants you to obey him because you love him. He wants you to obey him because not just of what he said, but of who he is. And he wants you to know him in your obedience. 
And so when you sin, what you should remember is, hold on, I need to be at peace with Jesus. I've just disagreed. I've just fallen out of harmony. I'm coming back right now, Lord Jesus. I disagreed with you, but now I'm agreeing with you right this minute. And you know what? He sets you back. You don't start at the beginning. You just come back. Why? Because he never moved. I was reading Isaiah. I've been reading Isaiah over the last month again. And again, Isaiah tells us, it is your sins who have separated you from God. He didn't go anywhere. While you are sinning, he's standing right there looking you in the face. But where are you looking? (laughs) Where am I looking? And so we must endure for the sake of our salvation. Because all that happens when you don't come to church for three weeks and then you feel guilty for six and so you're not praying and reading your Bible is you just missed out on three weeks of church and six months of relationship with Jesus. That is literally all that happened. Because he is not cross with you. He is not upset with you. I tell you this all the time. Nothing about you shocks him. Nothing. Because he knows everything. Before you knew he sinned, he saw it. Lightning did not come out the sky and strike you dead. He did not wipe your name from the eternal list for heaven. But what he is wanting is just confess, just repent, just run back into his arms and keep going. Bambalela! When should we endure? As we do God's will. 1 Peter 4 verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing Good. Do you want to do God's will? It's kind of like conforming to Christ. The second you say, God, I want to do your will, we're going to start suffering because his will is not my will. Simple as that. Remember what I said, the most basic definition of suffering, there's something in my life I don't want, there's something not in my life that I do want. Well, can you see now how that works for us as good Christians? God, I want to obey you. I want to do your will. As long as I can be rich and have a hot wife (laughs) and never suffer ESCOM's nightmare. That's what we are like. Can we just be honest? (laughs) And God's like, yes, you are going to do my will. I don't know how hot your wife's going to be, but you're going to have to go do the work of finding her and then you're going to have to love her like I love the church. Don't know how rich you're going to be, but it doesn't really matter because you need to trust me for provision. And beyond finances, trust me that I'm actually going to move through you and do something eternal and magnificent. (laughs) So are you getting why you feel like you are suffering? Because you are dying to yourself. You are. It hurts. It's horrible. I hate it. But I know I need to keep doing it. You are suffering because you said, Jesus, I will do your will. (laughs) And when your will bumps into him, you will always feel like it's suffering. And so how do we know what his will is? Well, we search the scriptures. First and foremost, who is he? I can't know his will if I won't know him. I will be at the mercy of people who will tell me what God's will is, and that's just putting religion and law and and performance on you. God never drives us. God never forces us. He calls us. He invites us. He draws us in. And so if you are struggling with the will of God, if you don't know what your purpose is, just start knowing him. Every one of you has a purpose. Every one of you has a calling. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But until you know him, 
How can you follow the call when you don't know who's calling you? So if you're confused, if you're stressed out and freaked out, if you feel like God's not answering your, answering your prayers about what is my purpose, just start knowing him. How do you do that? You read the word of God. You read it and you read it and you read it. You read it for fellowship. You read it and let it convict your heart. That's how you're going to know him. So often I'm reading the Bible and I realize I was mean to Jesse this week. And then suddenly I know God because God says you should forgive. You should love each other. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That's how I know him. But I know that's how Jesse should be to me as well. I know God. Suddenly I begin to understand if my purpose isn't about other people and loving them, it's not God's will for my life. Making money is a gift. The Bible says that. Who are you giving the money to? That's purpose. Where are you putting it? That's purpose. Make money, please. But understand, it's a gift. Prophecy is a gift. I love it. I prophesy wildly. I spent a whole weekend in Bloemfontein prophesying. It was amazing. But it's a gift. It's the people I'm prophesying to and how I'm imparting to them and loving them and impacting them and keeping relationship. And guess what? I've got a few more people I need to be responsible for now after doing the gift. Does that make sense to you? I, I also want to say this. As a counselor, as a pastor, I'm sure Lareko gets this. We so often have people, and you are so sincere, and you come down and you say, where should I live? What should I do with my life? Who should I marry? What job should I Pray with me. I'm so concerned. And we are very concerned about those things. But the New Testament has somewhere, depending on which version you read, uh, where did I write it? It has somewhere close to about a 684 commandments that tell us very clearly how to please God. Lerica, tell me if I'm correct, but not one of those commandments tells us who we should marry, what job we should do, or where we should live. Not at all. It's almost like God doesn't really care. There are 684 commandments that don't say one thing about that. None of you are asking me how to please God on those commandments. Here are some examples of what those commandments look like. Romans 12 verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The way it's written is a command. Love one another. Who is the one another? Look to your left. Look to your right. Look back. Look forward. That is your one another. That is a straight-up commandment from Jesus. If you do this, you will please me. I don't see anything about wives or jobs or, or you know. Romans 14, uh, Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Do you want to know how to please God? Stop judging each other. Stop being jealous of each other. Stop putting nonsense on each other that becomes a stumbling block. Nothing about wives or money or where to live. You're getting the point. 1 Corinthians 6.18, just the very first part of it. Flee from sexual immorality. Repeated like 32 times in the New Testament. Do you understand? We're trying to keep the wrong commandment. We're trying to keep stuff that isn't even a commandment. Do you want to know how to please God? Love each other, don't judge each other, flee from sexual immorality. And 680 other ones. 
that are very similar to these three. Are you getting where I'm going with this? Do you really want to know God's will or do you just want to have him bless what you want to do? Simple as that. If you just want him to bless what you want to do, endurance is going to be a nightmare. You won't endure. If you just do what he's asking you to do because you love him, because you think he's amazing, because you honestly believe that when he asks for your obedience, it's about your blessing. It's about your well-being. It's about your prospering. Endurance will become easy. And here's the one we really hate. We should endure when we are trying to produce character and gain hope. <laughs> have you ever asked God that question? Don't I have enough character? I've been a Christian for 35 years. I ask that question a lot, and there's only one answer I ever get. No, you don't. <laughs> Not Think of the best Christian you know on this whole planet. If they asked God, do I have enough? He would still say, no, you don't, because none of us will ever reach perfection. And so Romans 4, 5, verse 1 to 4 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. Hope is the essence of endurance. What are you hoping for? If you don't know what you are hoping for, you will never endure. If I cannot articulate the hope I have, the second any kind of, of, of tribulation comes, of resistance comes, I fall apart. What are you hoping for? That is a question you need to answer. And if you look at every single scripture in the New Testament that contains the word hope, it is exclusively tied to eternal life. Are you hoping for Jesus? Are you hoping for salvation in this life? It's not bad to be ambitious. It's not bad to have dreams that God has put in your heart and, and to want to do great things and to want to leave legacies. All of that matters. But what is your hope in? So let's get to the things that we should not endure. The first one is false doctrine. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I'm going to put this right in there. We do not tolerate and endure false doctrine. But we also do not tolerate and endure the narcissists who propagate it. That is our choice. See, if you want false doctrine, you will end up being controlled. It is as simple as that. And God does not want us to endure that nonsense. And we call it out. And I'm going to say boldly tonight, if you ever hear me, Lareko, Jesse, any of our pastors, and you think it might be false doctrine, you come and talk to us. But here's something. You better bring the Bible with you. You better bring your, your devotions with God and your reading of the word with you. We will engage you every single time. And if we're wrong, we will repent. Because what we are committed to is before we preach in this pulpit, we sit before the Lord and let him judge our hearts. And our endeavor is to do the very best we can to give you the best understanding we can. Because we don't want to control you. And we don't want to put heavy nonsense on you. But please work with us. Because some of those leaders are given leadership because people want what they're saying. 
Why do we eat grass? Not because people are weak and uneducated, because they want the power that is promised with eating grass. And then we hold that nonsense up. <laughs> so do not endure false doctrine and do not endure the narcissists who propagate it. Leave, move on, leave it behind. We do not endure lack of love. 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We don't endure it in ourselves and we don't endure it around us. Without love... Paul tells us we're clanging gongs and loud cymbals and we have no authority and no relevance in the world. One of the protocols we teach in our prophetic training is that um, the gifts operate by faith through love. And one of the definitions we have of a false prophet is an accurate word with an inaccurate heart is a false word because it's going to put heaviness on you. But there's no love. You see, God loves you first and foremost. God sees you and knows you. He will not change who he is for you, but he will make space for you until you come to him. He will deal with you as you need to be dealt with, not as Lareko does or Jesse does. He will deal with you as you need to be dealt with because of his love for you. He will never compromise anything he is, but he will work with you. And so don't tolerate other spaces that won't do that. And that brings me to this one. Oppression, injustice, and abuse. We do not tolerate these things. Zechariah 10.7 says, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. There was a season in this country where people endured oppression, injustice, and abuse until they didn't. And that was the most glorious moment of our nation when we said, No more apartheid. We will not tolerate it. We don't care who says what. We will not endure it. And obviously there are spaces in our lives where we don't have control. And Jesus is with us in that moment. Everything I've said is then a reason to endure, to keep trusting in Jesus, to push into peace. But there might be spaces in our life that we have more control than we think. And this is also something we should not endure. When we can do something to make the situation better through our faith and healthy choices. 3 John 1, 2 says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Some versions say that you will prosper as your soul prospers. And so there might be things that we endure that we don't have to. Abuse, toxic relationships, toxic work environments, debt, unforgiveness, medical and mental health issues. Some of that is out of our control, but there might be spaces where we can do something to change it. So I asked some of our young people to send me what they thought were things that we control, and I'm going to just read this to you. Concerning toxic jobs, one young man said, we want lifestyles, cars, houses, and holidays that are Instagram-worthy, that make us look like we have arrived and are living our best lives. Now we are dependent on those jobs to keep it up. If we lose the job, we lose the lifestyle. Even if a lesser-paying job is more fulfilling and makes for a healthier work environment and life, we are trapped, because what will the Graham say if I am now taking taxis instead of driving my BMW? That's not me, that's, that's this young man. 
A young lady suggested that the reason we endure toxic environments is because of peer pressure. With technology and people oversharing personal experiences and achievements, etc., there's always this concept of us having to endure peer pressure to compare ourselves with those who seem to be achieving based solely on social media. We do not have to, she says. That's good advice. A young man said this about toxic family relationships. I think that as young people, we dwell a lot in our childhood traumas to a point where we are afraid to confront our parents about some of the pain they caused us growing up. We end up believing that, we, but that the way we grew up was normal and okay. It's called normalizing trauma. He didn't know that. When we just grow up in a space and then we think that's normal, and so when health comes our way, we're like, what are you on about? Another young man agreed with this, speaking about how family histories of aband abandonment, divorce, or anger can endure in the next generation, causing suffering and pain. But how the younger generations can find help and faith to break these family trends and live a more loving and fulfilled family life of their own. He also spoke about the reality of fatherlessness and father wounds that are so prevalent in this generation and how it is possible to deal even with those very difficult issues. God is your father. You have a father. And we're, we're going to do a series on fatherlessness, father wounds. What is it called, Lerica? I've forgotten now. Father matters. We're going to do five weeks on that. Come, bring friends. We don't have to endure that anymore. One more said, we young people are dealing with generational trauma, especially of not seeing examples of relationships, healthy relationships from the older generation. But this one is one which I think my generation is doing something about, given the rise of the mental health and awareness movement. Absolutely. But as Christians, take your medication. As Christians, go to your therapy. As Christians come to worship night, tell your pastors, let us pray with you. In this house, we do not believe medication is demonic. We believe it is a blessing from God to help you function and live the life he's called you to live. For the sake of your salvation, endure. Yeah. We are going to destigmatize that nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely are. The wellness clinic, be responsible with your stress. Deal with it before it turns into depression, before anxiety starts ruling your life. When those things happen, God loves you. We love you. We will help you. But there are things we can do to minimize that. Concerning romantic relationships, a young man and a young lady separately <laughs> both spoke about how awful loneliness can be. Another reason for enduring unhealthy relationships in Johannesburg especially is fear of loneliness and a lack of companionship. With Johannesburg being such a busy place and such a happening place, it is hard to build genuine and authentic relationships because everything here is moving at such a fast pace. Hence, to avoid loneliness and to have companionship, it is easier for people in my generation to grab and hold on to whatever relationship or companionship that is available even with the obvious red flags. We're human. We want love. And if we won't figure it out healthy, we will always find toxic spaces. Loneliness is a huge one. Society and cultural norms are pushing the agenda of one not needing community. As a result, people are enduring the suffering of the lack of having community. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, 
what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined, that is what God has prepared for those who love him. We do not endure these things. We deal with them. We figure out. We invite Jesus and we use our faith. We use our spiritual family. We help each other. Are you in the connect group? I'm telling you right now, if you're not, endurance is going to be very hard because we are not called to do it alone. Um, I have so many people in this room, all these people in the front row, my family sitting over there. I have so many people who give me the strength to endure. We help each other. When I'm weak, Lareko comes and encourages, encourages me. When I'm mourning, Jesse and Zach comfort me. I can't do it without them. Neither can you. I'm telling you right now, it is not optional. Get into a connect group. Stop making excuses. Stop using work as an excuse. You tell your boss, at 6 o'clock I'm leaving and I'm going to connect group. That's why you have a contract. It protects you and it protects them. And if they're abusing you, you're in a toxic work environment. Don't endure it. Figure it out. Do you hear me? I love you. I'm talking to you as a dad. And I want you to take a picture of the last slide. What can we... Uh, how can we motivate ourselves to endure? Stefan, if you can just go to the very last slide. Please take a picture of this. It's self-explanatory. Read that. We don't have time to go through that tonight. But I want to pray for you. Actually, I want to invite Lareko to come and pray for us. Jesse's going to close the service after that. Um, Hebrews 10.36 actually just states it categorically. You have need of endurance. <laughs> This is how we get it. This is the things we do. We remember Jesus. We remember who he is. We remember the word of God. We remember the truth. We remember everything he's ever done for us before. Because continually we are going to have need of, exp- of endurance. Pray for us, Lyrical. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Because you are beautiful. And you are worth it. Thank you that our hope is in you. We echo Paul's words that our temporary trials and tribulations in this world are not worthy of comparison with the glory of eternity, intimacy of relationship with you, and all that you have in store for us that we could not even begin to imagine. Our our limited mindset cannot apply itself towards the magnitude of blessing and riches and wealth of peace and joy and prosperity and community and relationship and happiness and just eternal joy that you have in store for us. Help us to remember these things when we are suffering. Help us to remember, I I, want to pray for those people, Lord, who, who, who are suffering tonight. Help them to remember that the temporary trials and tribulations that they are going through cannot be compared with the blessing and the riches and the wealth found in you. Father, I ask that you would remind the people in this room who have lost hope, who are struggling with their hope in you or or have lost hope in the direction of their lives, have lost hope in their calling, whatever that space is, and you know who your children are, Lord. 
I pray, Father, that you would just deposit a grace for endurance into their souls. That you would reawaken inside of them a newness of hope. That they would they would lift up their eyes and like the psalmist that they would remember that their strength and their hope is not found in the things that are around them but that they would remember that their strength their hope their joy the answer to every single one of their prayers is in you father i pray for every single person who is in pain Your children who have walked in here with a broken heart, with a tormented soul. And I pray, Father, not only that you would deliver them, but that you would give them the gift of endurance. So that they would learn the beauty of going through the pain. That they would learn the beauty of developing that muscle and that strength to endure in the beautiful hope, that hope that is set before us. That they would come out of that of the, of the other end made more in your image. That there would be the gift and the inheritance that you have for them. Christ-likeness. And I, I speak that to you I speak that over you if you are in that place of, 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 of soul torment tonight. If, the, if you are in that space of heartbreak tonight. If you are navigating tragedy and sadness. You are navigating hardship. I speak over you that God gives you an endurance that produces inside of you a Christ likeness. At the end of your battle you will look more like Jesus. You will look more like Christ. That is your inheritance. Not a quick fix, but an eternal one that cannot be taken away from you. I thank you, Father, for every single one of your children. And I ask you, saints, to join me in, in, the, in, in this, this faith declaration I'm going to ask you to stand, but as, as, as we stand, I ask you to make that standing a declaration in itself. That as you stand, that you are telling yourself, I am choosing to stand in my place of pain. I am choosing to stand in my place of tragedy. I am choosing to stand. I am choosing to endure. I am choosing to hold on to hope. As I stand, I say, I will not run away. I will not back off. I will not bow down. I will not be weak. I will stand. And I say to you, having chosen to stand, having begun to stand, stand therefore. Because we have this hope, a returning Christ. Jesus is going to come back. That is our hope. That is the hope that helps us to endure through every circumstance and every pain. We have a returning king. I speak that into your souls. You have a returning king who has not abandoned you. In Jesus' name, thank you.